0: Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. And as we continue in God's presence together this morning, uh, I want to um, talk maybe maybe a slightly controversial take on pizza. I want to talk about our past. Uh, we'll stutter step through a couple of definitions and then talk about what it means that we are everyday people following Jesus every day. Pizza, Uh, I don't know what your favorite pizza crust is, and it doesn't really matter because you're probably wrong. The best pizza crust in the world uh, is the pizza crust that my wife makes. She will be quick to tell you that it was not her recipe. It's a Bobby Flay recipe on Food Network. Y'all could look that up and make it. I don't know if you'd make it as good as she does, but you could give it a shot. So one of our uh, tasty uh, treats then for our family is we will do a homemade pizza night where the, part of the beauty of a homemade pizza crust is that everybody gets their own little self-serve pizza option, right? Where we can then put in all of our own toppings and some of us can do it right and others can do it wrong. So mine, uh, I'm a red sauce cheese, lots of meat options, right? Whatever meat options we've, I mean, not whatever we got around the house, but like whatever, you know, pizza meats we got around and some pineapple. I know that's not everybody's favorite, but you can be wrong. That's fine. No, yeah, that's okay. That's okay. You, uh, I, I can love you through your wrongness. That's all right. Uh, so so that my pizza kind of goes that way. Um, my eldest daughter, uh, very similar taste in pizza. So it's good to know I'm doing something right as a parent of a 13-year-old. Uh, and um, my, my 10-year-old, uh, she, does it, she does it sort of right. Like it, we're we're kind of there. And then uh, she puts olives and mushrooms on her pizza and ruins the whole thing. So, mm, okay, a lot of loving my enemies this morning. That's all right, that's all right. We'll get there. Uh, so the last time we had pizza together, somehow we're talking uh, about this. And uh, again, the 13-year-old and I are, are commiserating about how we, we have this, this correct and um, and the younger one does not, and I blame her mom for that. But that's a different therapy discussion. So, uh, as as we're discussing this, and and uh, it came up somehow—I don't even remember how—that that this young lady who now likes olives and mushrooms on her pizza used to think mushrooms were gross, and I'm not quite sure where we went wrong. That she thinks they're good now, but she does, and. And she was adamant that that could not possibly be true. She's liked olives her whole life. When she was four, five, six years old, just give her a bowl of sliced up olives, happy camper. Uh, Mushrooms is a a newer add to her her palate. And and she's arguing with us about this, like that can't possibly be true. And, And of course, because mom and dad are saying it, it can't possibly be true. But when big sister weighs in and says, no, seriously, you didn't like them. You can watch the realization sort of dawn on her that maybe this is actually true, that she did not like mushrooms on her pizza years ago. And the look on her face is just one of of horror. Like she's just horrified that this could possibly be true. And she sort of pauses and goes, past me was a disgrace. (laughs) Which leads us to a far more serious question. Where would you look at your past and declare a disgrace? Where would you look at your story, your past self and declare a disgrace? We all have stories in our past that we wish weren't there. Embarrassments, pains, regrets. And the question behind this question is how do we wrestle with that fact? If we all have them, what do we do with them? I think there are, from my perspective, two primary ways that Americans are taught to deal with their past mistakes and disgraces. And these uh, two strategies are, are very different and they tell very different stories Interestingly enough, I think these two very different stories have the same main character. So we're taught two different strategies, either to own our mistakes or to disown our mistakes. Okay, there we go. Going a little excited. Either to own our mistakes or to disown our mistakes. And if you go, I've never been taught those strategies. I don't know that language. I think that's fair. We don't use those words Instead of saying to disown, we use the phrase, no regrets, right? uh, I'm going to live a life of, of no regrets, kind of like this guy. Uh, now, this guy, uh, for those who can, can't see, he's got a tattoo that says, no regrets." Spelling matters, kids. Uh, So this guy popped up on the internet uh, probably 10 or 12 years ago, and I'll be honest, I've always kind of felt bad for it because like one misspelled tattoo that I'm assuming he didn't do to himself, and suddenly he's viral on the internet. Now, it turns out, as some of you may know, the reason I uh, felt bad for him and should not have is because um, I have a lame sense of humor, and so I don't watch the funny movies that other people watch. This is from a movie called We're the Millers, uh, which, near as I can tell, I have not still watched the movie. I just watched this scene so that I know kind of what I was talking about. Uh, this movie uh, is a family of four in a motor home traveling around. Uh, mom and dad, and and their two uh, kids, uh, son and daughter, both both teenagers. And so this scene is this young man has showed up for his first date with their daughter. And they are sitting down, and they would like to have a little conversation with the, the carnival worker who just showed up to date their daughter. And so as they're talking, and the daughter is trying to get this conversation to end as quickly as possible, the dad says, hey, what's, uh, what's that tattoo there? What's that, what's that say? And this young man whips his hair back, and he says, oh, this is my credo. No regrets. No regrets. To which dad says, no regrets? Not, not even a letter? Maybe? No, man, not me. No regrets. It's funny. It's supposed to be. It's a caricature. It's okay. I do want to note, though, that there are very real, very thoughtful, and very humble people who have chosen this life philosophy to, to take on this motto and, and even to spell it correctly, no regrets. Now, by no regrets, sometimes people mean they are looking forward. And when they get to 10 years from now, they don't want to have any regrets about having missed out on something. That when they get to a decade down the road, they want to be able to look back and say, I, I took the risks, I went after it, I, I have no regrets about uh, not pursuing the things I wanted to pursue. That's sort of the forward-looking part of this philosophy. The backward-looking part of this philosophy is to say, no, I have no regrets about what has happened in my life. Typically, something to do with the idea of, I, I, do, I have no regrets because those things made me who I am. No no regrets because those things are, are now part of me. I mean, sure, there were parts that, that I didn't like, but it made me who I am. And it's as if regretting something would mean they would have to say, I, I don't like who I am. Or, or as if regretting something from the past, like I'd, I'd want to go back and change it would have this butterfly effect and I'd be an entirely different person without it. And And to a large degree, I actually totally get that. The ugly parts of our life do form and shape us. They are part of how we we grow in our character. To say uh, no regrets is often to insinuate then that the Thing from our past only had positive effects and a positive impact. That that everything that came from what somebody else could term as a negative experience had a positive impact on me, on my character, on my ability to relate to others, on my relationships. Before I go any further into this though, I I mentioned there'd be a couple of stutter steps for definitions and, and this is the first one. I wanna draw a distinction between regret and shame. Okay, these are, these are actually different words with different meanings, but sometimes I think we get them mixed up. So shame is the belief that something bad that I did means I'm bad. I did a bad thing, I did a wrong thing, therefore I am wrong, I am bad. It, it becomes this uh, definition of ourselves that we, we wear around. So if for you no regrets simply means I am not my mistakes. I won't wallow in the things that I did wrong. Great, that's really good. Especially for the Christian to say, Jesus has forgiven me, so I'm not going to live in shame. But I don't wanna get caught in this loop on the opposite side, where I believe regrets only had a positive impact because that ignores the damage that it did to my relationships or or even to, to myself. And to disown in that way the ugliness of our past means that I refuse to admit a need to be forgiven. And we can't actually then receive forgiveness from God or others if we don't admit a need to be forgiven. Second stutter step, a quick, a too quick primer on forgiveness. We can give whole sermons about this. We're going to spend like five minutes, okay? Forgiveness, boiling it down, oversimplifying it to a large degree. But I think this is a helpful definition. Forgiveness simply means releasing debt. It simply means releasing debt. So this is like a bank that would forgive a loan, right? You don't owe them anything anymore. They say, yes, you borrowed money, you owed us money, now you don't, which would be lovely, right? Okay, great, all right. Uh, uh, It's forgiving a a debt, Releasing, releasing somebody from owing you something. So in the case of people who have hurt us, if we're carrying around a hurt, this person hurt me. We're carrying that around because it feels unfair that this thing happened to us. And actually I think that uh, image we have of the scales of justice kind of tilted off, right? I think that's a helpful image because what we want when we're carrying around a hurt is we're saying this thing was unjust, an injustice has happened. This hurt happened to me that I didn't deserve. And we want something to balance those scales, to make it just, to make it fair. And in doing so, we're saying, somebody owes me something to balance this back out. The universe owes me something, God owes me something, that person owes me something. And because hurts are not rational, our thoughts on this and beliefs on this are not always rational and that's okay. But we sometimes carry around a belief that that person who hurt me when I was eight owes me a new childhood. This person owes me a different future. That that somehow they need to make up for this thing that they did. We're holding them to a debt. They owe us something to make it equal. At the very least, they owe us an apology. Maybe that would even it out. On some days we want revenge or we want for them to experience some payback or we just want them to feel in some way the hurt that we have felt. So that somehow this would balance it out, make it even. It's unfair, needs to be made fair. So to oversimplify, forgiveness means that we forgive that debt. And what's amazing about this is that that means like the bank doesn't need your permission to say, hey, you don't owe us anything anymore. You don't need the other person's permission, right? It doesn't require their apology. It doesn't even require them to admit that they did something wrong for you to say, I don't believe you owe me anything for you to stop carrying around this hope that they're somehow going to make up for it one day and make it all right. And when we're carrying around this anger that somebody owes us something, we have been harmed and somebody needs to make up for it. We're carrying that poison of anger around in us. And it is actually healthy and helpful for us to say, I'm not going to wait around for somebody to make it even anymore. I'm going to forgive that debt. And it doesn't require anything on their part. Could God forgive us without us acknowledging it? Yes. Yeah, he could. So how come we teach and preach that that we have to confess our sins and then be forgiven of them? Couldn't God just forgive them outright? Absolutely. But, that is not the healthiest thing for us. For us to acknowledge that we have done something that requires forgiveness, as we're going to see a little later, is a step in what leads to life change, a different perspective, a different way forward. Because the truth is, we can give forgiveness without an apology or an admission. We can't receive forgiveness without admitting that there is something to be forgiven for. If somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I forgive you for punching me in the face, and you say, I never punched you in the face. Yeah, I know, but I'm forgiving you anyway. Like that'd be weird and ridiculous, right? There, there needs to be some sort of admission, I've done something wrong in order to receive that forgiveness. For your relationship with that person to be made whole, they're going to have to admit that they did wrong. You can forgive them before that. But in order for a relationship to be made whole, they're going to have to admit they did something wrong. For your relationship with other people to be made whole, more than likely, you're going to have to admit that you did something wrong. And in that way, open yourself to receiving forgiveness, admitting the ugly, receiving forgiveness, if not from people than from God. We tend to say no regrets and disown the ugly in our past because we refuse to feel bad about who we are. And on the one hand, again, regret and shame are different things. So that that in and of itself is is fine. No shame, that's great. But regret and, and shame are different words. And Funnily enough, maybe ironically enough, Scripture actually teaches that the way to no regrets is through sorrow. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 in the New International Version, the NIV. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So godly sorrow brings a repentance, leads to salvation, and leaves no regret. Now, if you've been around uh, for a while, uh, you may have picked up on that it is not my tendency or first inclination to put a verse like this out here, and then let's dig into all the Greek behind it to figure out exactly all the nuances of what it says. I think sometimes that can be helpful. Sometimes it's not particularly I think in this case, it's really helpful. So I want to dig into the Greek behind it a little bit. Um, And uh, before you think I'm just oh so smart and well-read, you can find this stuff the same place I did, BibleHub.com. It's available to you too. There's this thing called the internet. And if you type in, never mind, uh, If you type in a Bible verse, you can get to BibleHub.com and they actually uh, have what would be the equivalent of shelves worth of commentaries, uh, Strong's Concordance, where you can dig into the Greek. So not the most intuitive website ever, uh, but you can dig in and play around um, and see what you find there. I, I thought some of the, the Greek that we translate with these English words uh, was, was super interesting and, and helpful. And uh, just because just I can, I want to see, I feel like this is going to make me feel like a powerful, po- oh gosh, I have a laser pointer. How cool is that? Okay, do teachers teach like, do you teach with a laser? No, Oh. You should, this is an incredible feeling of power. Anyway, <laughs> next week's sermon will be on pride. All right, um, <laughs> godly, godly sorrow, sorrow. This, this in the Greek means, I think, what we would expect it to. It means to grieve, to feel a sadness for something from the past, godly sorrow. What, what's really interesting to me in this sentence is this word brings what we translate as brings, the Greek word means to do or to practice or to work or to acquire by labor. Godly sorrow brings repentance. Godly sorrow works out in us, does a work in us. There is a labor to it, there is some work of grieving the past that brings repentance. And repentance simply means to go a different direction. About face, turn around, go a different way. We we often think it is a very spiritual word. It's a very practical word. You're going a different direction. That godly sorrow, a godly grief, actually dealing with the things from our past that are worthy of grieving over, brings us to this place. By working it out in us, by doing a labor in us of being able to go a different direction, of repentance, a repentance that leads to salvation. Now, we kind of know salvation. Salvation is a rescue to, to be saved, to be given a new life. And it says it leads to his salvation and leaves no regret. This is a salvation without regret. Repentance going a different way that doesn't lead us to regret. But it is also possible in context to read this as the one feeling no regret is the one who enacts the salvation. That God does not regret saving you. So if you feel like, man, I said yes to Jesus, but I keep messing this thing up over and over again. I see all these superstar Christians around me and I am nothing like them. I bet God really, I bet God's up there going, man, I can't believe I saved that one. If if you feel like God is disappointed in you, that God regrets saving you, it's simply not true. It is a salvation without regret in both directions. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, the words for sorrow and brings are essentially the same thing there as before. The word that we translate as worldly is best translated as orderly and decorative. It's like the word you would use for decor in your house an orderly decorative grief is not gonna do a deep work in you because an orderly decor level grief is for the benefit of other people. It's so that they see you in some sort of light, whether you want them to see you as grieving or you want them to see you as having it all together. But there is a deep grief a grief that God invites us into, a godly sorrow that does a work in us that leads to a repentance and a salvation without regret. To declare no regrets, disowning the ugliness of our past, not acknowledging the poor choice or painful experience, had painful consequences, that is a decorative sorrow. So one way to write the story of your life is to declare it a no regrets story. But I do think it's worth asking who the main character of that story is. So we'll come back to that in a moment. The other way that we are taught to process our story and and, and the ugliness of our past is to own the mistake. To really own it and I find this painfully ironic, that the prevailing attitude of our culture today is a no regrets attitude. Every politician and advertisement wants you to live a no regrets life and they will sell it to you that way. Buy our product, vote for me, and you will have no regrets. But if you don't, let me tell you about all the regrets you are going to have. We live in a world that wants to have the wholeness that God gives us and the forgiveness that God gives us without including God in the process. And so the only way to do that is to declare, well, I'll just forgive myself, which is also a really good idea. I'll just forgive myself for the stuff of the past, and now I'm good to go. No regrets. I don't have to deal with it anymore. That's the prevailing attitude of our culture. And we will absolutely skewer somebody for something they did or said 30 years ago, particularly a public figure. If they do or say something that we go, that is an abhorrent thing, and it may very well be, we will absolutely skewer them. And we call it accountability. What we want people to do is to own their mistakes, to really, and, and the public persona that this happens to has no choice but to do that, anything less than saying you're right, this mistake I made absolutely defines who I am and I will forever wear this as a scarlet letter around my neck for the rest of my life will lead to people going, well, they're not even sorry. We'll absolutely skewer people. Now, we also will oscillate back and forth between skewering people and completely forgetting about it depending on how talented or likable that person is, Right? So on the one hand, we are taught to disown our ugly past, no regrets. And on the other, we are taught to own our ugly and be defined by it, wear that scarlet letter. And this does seem like the, I mean, we're only given two choices. So if the no regrets cavalier attitude isn't it, then I guess carrying the past around is going to have to be. If, If refusing to grieve our past is the wrong way. And holding our grief tight and defining our lives by it must be the other way. And how we define ourselves, the criteria we use, the conclusions we come to is an incredibly important part of how we react to the world around us, interact with the world, perceive the world around us. So a Jesus story uh, about this. You wanna click these ones? Great, thank you. Luke uh, chapter five, starting in verse one. some fish, And I imagine that Peter's reaction was very snarky. I don't know that it was. I do know mine would have been. Okay, look, preacher guy, that's, that's great. You, you use big, nice words. That's lovely. We're the fishermen. And I'm telling you, we tried this all night. There are no fish. They don't just magically show up at dawn. But if you say so, here's his reaction. Verse five, master, Simon replied, We worked hard all last night, it didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please leave me. I am such a sinful man for he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. So how does Peter define himself? I am such a sinful man. And it tells us why. In, in light of Jesus, Peter feels so unholy. And in, in light of this master's kindness and the bounty of fish, he feels so unworthy. And I think, ironically, Christians are particularly particularly likely or susceptible to owning their past sins. Now, this is Peter's first encounter with Jesus. But I think as followers of Jesus, we can sometimes have a tendency to carry around the things that Jesus has forgiven as our banner, to say, these are the things that I need to tell you about. These are the things that I am gonna carry forward uh, with me so that I can remember how much of a scum I am and I can tell you how much of a scum I am because I really, really, really needed Jesus to forgive me. Did you really, really need Jesus to forgive you? Yeah, you did. But why are we carrying around the scarlet letter instead of the forgiveness? How does Jesus define Peter? I wanna be careful because it can look like Jesus is defining Peter by what Peter is going to do. He says, don't be afraid. I will make you a fisher of men. But notice he doesn't say, don't be afraid, Peter. You are gonna be a really good fisher of people. You are going to be awesome at this. And and when you convert a million people, I am going to love you. No, he says, don't be afraid. He says, Peter, you are worthy of courage. So take courage. You are worthy of being called to something. You are worthy of relationship. Peter, would you come and follow me? The next day they left everything and they followed him. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. One of the interesting things about following a teacher like Jesus is that you go wherever the teacher leads you. That's what Peter signed up for. And James and John, they signed up to go wherever Jesus went. They didn't always know where they were going. In fact, often they didn't. They just were following Jesus. That's what they signed up for. We are following Jesus every day. That's what we signed up for. If you've signed up to follow Jesus, we're going wherever he leads us. We are on this journey of following him. So I want us to think about a journey for just a second and how we, not the band, different journey, because I know some of you got high notes going off in your head. Stay with me. Okay, how do we define A journey. We define a journey based on where we are going. So, hey, I heard you had a vacation next week. Are you doing anything fun? You maybe say, yeah, we're getting out of town. Maybe it's simply based on leaving a place. But the follow-up question then is always, where are you headed? Most of the time, hey, are you doing anything fun? Yeah, we're headed down to Portland. Yeah, we're headed to a cabin. Yeah, we're headed to the beach. Yeah, we're going to Disneyland. We define a journey based on where we are going to. When we define ourselves by the ugliness of our past, we're defining our journey of following Jesus by where we have been, not where we're going. Now, we don't always know where we're going, but we do know who we are going after, who we're going to. As we talked about this, Jesse pointed out to me that if if you're, uh, you got, let's say, a two and a three-year-old and you're headed to grandma's house and they've never been to grandma's house, at least not that they can remember, they can picture in their head, but they do know grandma. So saying, hey, we're going to grandma's house. They're not excited about the house part. They're excited about the grandma part because they know she's going to spoil them rotten and give them back to the parents and say, they're sugared up, have fun. Anyway, it's fine. It's good. I'm looking forward to it. Anyway, they, they know that they're going to grandma and they're excited about that. Kids the same age, you say, hey, we're going to Disneyland. They can't picture all that is Disneyland. They've never been before. But if you say, hey, we're going to go see Mickey, they are in They are ready to go. Even if we don't know where we're going, we know who we're going to. If you're on an actual traveling journey, driving from one place to another, maybe you pull off in some tiny little town off the freeway where everybody knows each other. And so when you walk into that gas station, everybody knows you're not from around there, right? And if you... Uh, have a particularly chatty cashier as you pay for your gas or your car snacks or whatever, they may say, so, where are you from? I'm from Southwest Washington. Maybe they have a sister from Southwest Washington or something, a little chat about that. But the next question is always going to be, so, where are you going? And if you are at all excited about where you're headed, It would be so, so weird to answer that question with, doesn't matter, let me tell you about the lousy place I came from. I mean, it's really awful. Like we'd never answer the question that way. We'd say, well, I'm going to this place and I'm looking forward to it. We're going to grandma's, we're gonna see Mickey, we're going wherever it may be. Your story of God's grace in your life is not defined by who you were but by who you are following. Your story of God's grace in your life is not defined by who you were, but by who you are following. Part of the irony of these two approaches that we're taught to own or disown our past, to be defined by or to say no regrets no matter what, part of the irony is that both stories have the same main character in them, your mess, the ugly parts of your past. Because if I'm telling a no regrets story because those things made me who I am, I I would never get rid of them. They made me who I am. Well, they've defined you and you've now made them a central part of the plot of your story. In the mess defined story, My mistakes define who I am and I give them a starring role in the plot of my life. God wants to write a story in your life with the spotlight on grace. God wants to write a story in your life with the spotlight on grace. Jesus' name up in lights as the star of your journey. And when somebody asks you, hey, where are you from? You can tell them. Tell them about the, the hurt, the mistakes, the mess. Tell them about the grace of Jesus and what he has saved you from. Oh, but yeah, I was in this mess. But then Jesus gave me grace and he pointed me in a new direction. And so now I'm following him and I'm not sure where I'm going, but I'm following him. And when I lose sight of him, when I get fed up with going on a journey that I don't know where we're headed, sometimes I turn around and I go back to the mess. That same mess that Jesus pointed out was a mess and that he needed to rescue me from, I I go back to it. And every time I turn around and there's Jesus ready to remind me that it's a mess, and he has a better and a different way for me to go, there's Grace inviting me to follow after Jesus. So I'm, I'm not quite sure where I'm going, but I know that I'm following Jesus and His grace. You could come along, too. Come along with me, come along with us. We're just trying to follow Jesus every day, wherever he leads us. Who you were does not have to be ignored. And who you were does not have to define who you are. Who you were is simply a spotlight for grace to shine. Let's thank God for his grace together. Father God, we are grateful for the ways that you continue to faithfully show up in our lives. For the ways that as we stumble through this journeying thing, you continue to point us in a different direction. Father God, we confess our desire to turn around and go back to what feels familiar and comfortable even if it's messy. We confess, I confess. I don't like not knowing where we're going. But Jesus, we wanna continue to follow after you. Would you remind us that we can take courage and take those steps of following you? Would you remind us that we're called to do that? we are called to be a part of the great things you're doing. And that we are invited to be in relationship with you. Thank you for making that relationship possible through your death and resurrection, through your grace and your love and your life. We pray in Jesus' holy name, amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.